Here we go. It's officially game week for Penn State football. I know all of you listening out there have waited to hear those words for a long, long time. Now, before we welcome in ESPN's Marty Smith, we have some big news today. The Unrivaled Podcast has a new official sponsor, Rocket Mortgage, proud mortgage partner of Penn State Athletics. The alarm clock goes off in the morning. Are you going to hit the snooze button or are you going to get up and attack the deck? Compete in everything you do. Unrivaled, the official podcast of Penn State football. Let's dominate now. Here's your host, Mitch Gerber. Marty Smith, our latest guest on the Unrivaled podcast, as Penn State continues to get set for their week one matchup with the Indiana Hoosiers. Now, Marty, normally I'd sit here and give some cliche open to the start of our podcast, but I'm going to say that you are college football's hype man. So rather than start with that cliche (laughs) open, I'm going to ask you this. You heard in the intro bump head coach James Franklin say, when the alarm clock goes off in the morning, are you going to hit the snooze button? Or will you get up and attack the day? I have an inkling that you're not the guy that's going to hit the snooze button. So what motivates you to get up and attack each and every day? My blessings. Uh, I'm, I'm a very fortunate man. And I grew up on a cattle farm in Appalachia, dreaming someday of having the opportunity to have some sort of profession in sports. And I've been afforded that blessing and that's it. Uh, and, and, and my family. So yeah, man, I'm a, I'm an early riser and I'm an ass kicker and any, I've always been a guy where I feel like if somebody cracks the door for you, it's up to you to kick the damn door down. And I've lived my life that way. I've made a career on passion. And so there you go. Um, you're right. I am not a snooze button guy. (laughs) If we were to go back in time to your roots of where you grew up, and I told you that you were going to be where you are today, would you believe me? No, I don't think so. And the reason is because the kind of operating procedure for hometowns like mine in most cases is you, you, you know, you, you grow up, you're born there, you grow up there, you settle down there. And, and then, you know, it just kind of repeats itself. And that's what the vast majority of my buddies growing up did. And, and that's awesome. It's a beautiful life. I just always had these fantastic dreams that I wanted to go do huge things. And so many people have afforded me opportunity and believed in me that have given me those, those doors to kind of walk through and they've taken chances on me man we like your passion we think that you will be very good at this go prove us right and I mean that goes all the way back to when ESPN first called me in the in the springtime of 2006 when I had never made TV in my life and I went home and told my wife I would rather crash and burn and fail knowing I can't then be 75 years old having a cold beer on the back porch wondering if I could have. And so I jumped into TV and made a lot of mistakes and was, was, was tutelage. I had great tutelage from everybody at ESPN and great patience and belief. 
And then the next level of that was being a sports-centric reporter in auto racing and Lee Fitting and John Wildhack, who at the time was a high-ranking executive at ESPN, who is now the AD at Syracuse. Those kind of folks seeing something in me and the passionate approach I had and going, that dude belongs in college football. Well, my gracious, to to have that chance for them to drop me in the inaugural college football playoff, such a massive platform, and say, go prove us right. And they dropped me in Columbus, Ohio, like an alien from Mars. And, and I got to live that that national championship season with Ohio State and Urban Meyer and Ezekiel Elliott and Joey Bosa and Michael Thomas. And it just is a dream. And that's never going to be lost on me. I'm never going to lose or forsake those opportunities. And that's why I wake up every day and I'm so amped tomorrow as you and I take this. It's a Wednesday morning. I'm going to Boone, North Carolina to broadcast a Sun Belt Conference thriller with Arkansas State and Appalachian State. And so I'm just, I, I love it. I love it so much. And I'm so grateful. I don't care how hokey it sounds coming out of my mouth. It's just the truth. My gratitude abounds. With all that said, who has had the biggest impact on your life? Oh, gosh. Um, well, there have been so many. And, and, you know, personally, my parents, of course, had such an unbelievable influence in not shooting down those fantastic dreams, but cultivating them uh, and, and giving me uh, a, faith, a faith-driven base in my life. I... Uh, I like to drink Jack Daniels, and I might say it's a few too many four-letter words, but I love Jesus. And, I, you know, my wife, who we've now been married 20 years, and we have grown and evolved together, and she has always championed my opportunities professionally, and she had to sacrifice dramatically in order for those opportunities to play out the way they have. Um, she's an amazing woman and my greatest sounding board and doesn't take any of my crap and is very honest with me. And so, so of course she's been a tremendous factor, but look, I, I consider us all to be pieces of clay. And the, the reason that I look at it that way is this, every acquaintance that we have, you and I speaking right now, we've never met. You and I speaking right now will pinch at my clay. And each one of those acquaintances or each one of those relationships or those friendships or those loves or loves lost, pinch at that clay. It might just be a small piece of your shoulder. It might take a whole chunk out of your rib. But what it does is it reshapes who you're going to be tomorrow. And I've had countless, countless, of those relationships and acquaintances. And I'm going to uh, watch your toes because I'm going to go full name drop on you right here. I mean, I've had the opportunity to sit across from and have 
unbelievable conversations of depth with some of the most accomplished sporting icons of our time, whether that's going to China for a week with Cristiano Ronaldo, probably the most famous athlete on this planet. I've sat across from Nick Saban, and I've sat across from James Franklin, and I've sat across from Tiger Woods and heard him like seeing seen mist in his eyes talking about his dad and their relationships and playing golf at the old Navy course with his father when he was nine years old. All those things shaped me. And walking through Dale Earnhardt's death with Dale Jr., who's one of my best friends on the planet, and my own parents' death. They, my parents were far too young when they died. And managing those emotions and really figuring out who you're going to be, all that stuff shaped me. And that's why some people don't believe my passion and my energy is real. They don't believe my accent is real, which, of course, the most beneficial thing in broadcast journalism is a southern accent. Come on, man. <laughs> so... I've lived all of that hurt and all of those lessons, and I've learned over time that my ego and my insecurities drove a lot of what I've done, but fortunately, the mistakes I've made and some of the mistakes I want back made me self-aware, and those losses made me self-aware so that I feel like it ultimately resulted in the best version of whatever and whoever I am yet. And that's where the energy comes from. You talk about, you know, your very first question was a very astute one. I wake up every single day wanting to be kind, wanting to give every last ounce of everything I got and to do it with an undeniable positive energy because I can't lose if I live my day with kindness, effort, and passion. So that's a really long, drawn-out way to tell you kind of my modus operandi. And it's not going to change. I'm a 44-year-old man. And I will tell you, this is interesting to me. Coaches, college football coaches, have gravitated to that in a lot of ways because it's kind of how they live. And they have to live. And so I've been able to foster some unique relationships with some of those guys as a result of that unmitigated want to be kind and energetic and passionate. And that matters to me. I mean, it really does matter to me, and I'm grateful for that. Now, Marty, you have such a unique style with your, your storytelling abilities and the way that you go, go about your business on a, on a day-in and day-out basis. But when it comes to that relationship aspect, I think that's something that people miss out on quite frequently, um, in my opinion. And that is your ability to develop that relationship with the head coach, develop that relationship with a student-athlete, no matter if it's, if it's Tiger Woods or if it's Pat Firemuth. So for you, how do yep. you go about developing those relationships? relationships with your personality i think it took it took a lot of time for me to figure out who i was or who i am is the right way to say it i was probably in my mid-30s maybe late 30s before i had any idea 
what, like who I really am. And again, that took some mistakes and that took some chances and that took some victories to kind of hone that in. And it took a lot of grace from my wife. And so, uh, I think the, the best way to answer that question is in journalism school, you're kind of taught, don't get too close to the subjects you cover. And I understand why, because you don't want to be biased. You want to, you want to walk that line of reporting the truth with fairness and accuracy, right? But I never subscribed to that part of journalism. I, my greatest insecurity in life is I like to be liked. And if, I'm, if I don't feel like somebody likes me, man, it kills me. And that's why social media, that's why I don't read social media mentions. Because I don't need to be told from somebody in mama's basement that they want me to die today. And I just don't need that in my life. I don't need that energy in my life, so I don't subscribe to it. But I do, I want to build a relationship with somebody and learn about their life and what makes them go. And then I want to build from there. Like my interviewing approach is this. And this, look, this was honed over years of terrible interviewing skills. When I got to ESPN, I got much better because um, they teach us very well how to interview people. And that philosophy is you ask open-ended questions that allow the subject to tell you the story. You're not asking yes or no questions that lead them to a story, if that makes sense. Now, certainly there are times, like, I don't know, I, any, I, you can use any arbitrary example. Did you... Did you do that, you know, in one of those 60-minute types of interviews? Then a yes or no question might be pertinent. But if I'm interviewing Tiger Woods, for example, here's how I do this. I ask, so I study, 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 study. I build a question list of maybe 30 questions. I study that question list over and over again, tear it down to maybe 10 questions, study that over and over and over again, and then before the interview starts, I crumple those questions up and throw them in the trash. Because I want it to be a conversation with that person. I want to listen to that person so that they know I'm engaged in them and I'm not looking at a notepad. And because invariably, brother, invariably, I learned this from Tom Rinaldi, the greatest sound bites or the greatest introspection vulnerability typically comes from questions like why they're telling you something and you go well why did you do that or why was that the case? or how how did you do that why was that the case when did you learn that those types of questions boom then you're getting this real introspective content and that took years and years for me to get there and i will tell you this let me tell you a quick story I am rambling, and I'm sorry, Penn State and Indy Lions fans, <laughs> we love that it. you're having to hear. <laughs> so I'll tell you when I really had to wake up, and back to that vulnerability and, and whatnot, and the self-awareness. In 2012, I think was the year, I did an interview. I was covering NASCAR at the time for ESPN, and I did an interview with Jeff Gordon. You know, our, one of the greatest uh, race car drivers of all time, someone that I had built great rapport with. 
and he grants me this interview. And I did the interview at Daytona International Speedway. And we're sitting in this room, and I feel like I am crushing this interview, right? Crushing it. Well, I had been – I, I kind of drove I kind of drove the interview where I wanted it to go, okay? And I felt like I had done this great job of that. Well, fast forward a couple of weeks to when the interview actually aired. It aired during the pre-race NASCAR countdown show on ESPN before a race at Loudoun, New Hampshire. All right? That interview airs. I'm getting all this feedback on my thumb, patting myself on that, on the butt. You're the man. You know, really feeling myself. Well, after the race, I am uh, waiting outside of Dale Earnhardt Jr.'s race car to interview him about his race. He had wrecked or something. And he gets out of the car, and there's probably 20 or 25 reporters waiting with me. He gets out of the car, and he looks right at me, and he kind of, you know, whips his head back like a, hey, hey, come over here type of body language. So I point at myself. I'm like, me? He goes, yeah, come here. So I go over to him, and he kind of walks me over to the entrance to the 18-wheeler that carries his race cars to and from the track, and he puts his back, he turns his back to the other reporters so they can't see what he's saying to me. And he pokes me in the chest, and he goes, you need to shut up. And, like, again, dude, this guy's like my brother. So I kind of bow up. I'm like, what the hell you mean I need to shut up? You need to shut up. He goes, you need to stop interrupting people because it's rude. I was watching that interview you did with Jeff this morning before the race, and there were things he was saying that I wanted to hear him finish, and you kept cutting him off. And it was rude. And you looked like an idiot. And you know what? I was so angry. And the reason I was so angry at Dale was because I knew he was right. I knew he was right. I didn't let Jeff finish his thoughts because I, I wanted to drive that interview where I wanted that interview to go. Rather than let the interview go where Jeff needed it to go. And right there, I changed my complete philosophy and approach to interviewing people and guess what happened my the interviews took on a whole new life and that's what a good friend that's what a friend does he told me to shut up bro and and it changed me and so with that with that it allowed these these people i'm interviewing to tell me their story and to tell the world their story and then all of a sudden, you build this different rapport with them, right? And so there's that. And then I'll tell you, because of ESPN's platforms being, especially like in college football and whatnot, when, when an athlete sees you operate a certain way, they kind of have an expectation of what they're going to get. And that's benefited me too. It's really benefited me with, with people that I've interviewed over the last 10 years or so, because they see kind of what happens and then they expect, they have an expectation. And my goal is to meet that expectation or exceed it for them. Tell me about your conversation with Pat Fryermuth. So speaking of the ESPN platform and your podcast, obviously he was able to sit down with you and have a, have an open dialogue conversation about where the Big Ten stood at the time. This was a couple of weeks ago before everything is where it is today. But tell me about your conversation and what impressed you about that discussion with Baby Gronk. Um, first of all, having studied him on film a bit before that interview, 
I mean, I knew of him, of course. I knew what a, a good player he was. But when I started really looking at his talent and, and his skill set, I was floored, like just floored at what a matchup nightmare he is. And the Baby Gronk nickname is an apt one because he is such a huge body, great athleticism, impossible to cover in the red zone, on and on. And then you get to, you get to have a conversation with a young man like that and, and learn about their life and learn about their passions and, and how hard they work to be great. And I couldn't have enjoyed that conversation more. What a wonderful kid. And I shouldn't call him a kid. They're not kids. What a wonderful young man and, and a light for all of you who are listening and to have him in your program and the fact that, you know, Hey man, I'm not opting out. I'm not going anywhere. I don't even know where that came from. And that's great for your offense this year too, by the way. (laughs) Um, because he could. I mean, a, a talent like that, when you look at what's happening in the NFL and what a, what a dominant weapon these tight ends have become in the league, I mean, that's a, that's a first-rounder, man. And so uh, that's huge for your offense and, and uh, you know, bringing in a new offensive coordinator and for Clifford to have that kind of, uh, that kind of weapon. So – I couldn't have, I enjoyed it so much. And, you know, the conviction that, that those young men like Pat, those young men like Sean Wade at Ohio State and Justin Fields at Ohio State, and I also interviewed on my podcast Aiden Hutchinson from Michigan, but the great defensive end that they have there. The conviction that the players had to get on the field this season. Now, we're not naive. We all know that. Uh, of rapid testing was a huge, probably the ultimate variable in this season happening. But by God, so was the player conviction, and so was the coach convention uh, conviction. Excuse me, and and all of all of the just relentless desire to compete this year from from Coach Franklin, from Coach Harbaugh, from Coach Day, certainly from from uh, Scott Frost. Those guys were, were integral in this. And I'm so thrilled for all of you guys that you're going to have a season. Uh, I think that you guys are going to be one of the best teams in college football. I certainly feel that way about Ohio State as well. So it's going to be fun, man. And it's here. Finally. It's finally here. Uh, finally, right? F- from your conversations with those individuals, how big of a mental health toll do you feel that it took on their on their bodies throughout this entire process? A dramatic one. And and that's a phenomenal point that should not be lost and should be discussed. Because every coach that I talk to, uh, and the coaches more than the players, the players do what they do. And now in speaking with Sean Wade, he was a little bit more vocal about that, about the fact that these guys had no answers. Like Sean Wade, is a, is a first-round talent. Mel Kiefer will tell you that he's the best cornerback in America. So this guy is going to be a, a big-time draft pick, just like I said about Pat, and Aiden, for that matter. Aiden Hutchinson. So when you don't have any answers and you are working so hard towards what could be nothing, 
And then the people that are charged with leading you and always having the answers, like James Franklin, like Ryan Day, like Scott Frost, like Jim Hall, et cetera, don't have any answers from the league level and the administrative level, it, the mental toll is very real. And uh, so that is something that should be discussed. I'm going to be fascinated to see, like my kids, I have 14, 11, and 8 at home. All of them are learning virtually. It's hard. It's really hard. It's hard on the students. It's hard on the parents. It's hard on the teachers. It's hard on everybody. It's what we have to do right now. 15 years, there's going to be studies done on what that mental impact was, emotional impact was. And that's certainly going to be applicable to these young men playing college football. So, I mean, I can't wait to see the energy on Saturday because it's going to be unbelievable. Um, you know, college game day is going to the, the Minnesota game, uh, Minnesota-Michigan game. That's going to be bananas. Uh, so it's just cool. Uh, but, yes, I think it's very real, that mental toll. Marty, you've mentioned head coach James Franklin now a couple of times, but do you remember the first time that you interacted with him? I, I want to say uh, – I'm not positive about this, but I want to say – it was, I think you guys hosted Michigan. Is that when it was? I think it was when you guys hosted Michigan for a whiteout in 2017. But it might have been earlier than that. I know. So I was at the game. This is a bad memory for you guys. I'm sorry. I was at the game at the shoe when you guys had a huge lead on Ohio State and JT Barrett brought Ohio State back to win late. It might have been that week, or it might have been that whiteout uh, against Michigan. And I love, like, I, I'm so impressed with him, with, with Coach Franklin. And again, he's one of those guys, like I was saying, I am un- I'm completely unabashed about that energy. And so is he. And it's like, I love that about him and about so many college football coaches that they operate how they operate. And and, and it's, it's, I want to build a great program, and I want to prepare the young men in my stead for greatness in life. And if we play to our standard, not the scoreboard, we're going to be great. And I love that about Coach Franklin. How about the Penn State whiteout? You've been able to attend a couple of those, and you talked to Pat about it, and it's always such a fascinating perspective when you're able to hear from multiple different vantage points with the Penn State whiteout. When was your first whiteout experience? I want to say it was that, I really think it was the 2017 season. Might have been 16, I forget. But but when you guys hosted Michigan, and I was, I had, I had, lofty expectations um i'm you know i'm a virginia tech guy i grew up going to those games in blacksburg so i i love the i love the uh, inner sandman entrance and all those things and and i had been at that point really immersed in the southeastern conference at that time and so i'd seen seen some great tradition there and if you were to ask me i think my I think the greatest college football experience I've had was a Saturday night in Death Valley in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, when Alabama came to town. Now, if you're going to to tear that, I think that the whiteout experience is right there. 
Um, I had high expectations. It, it, you guys exceeded my expectations in a very big way. Um, the, the constant energy. There is no lull. It just keeps going. Uh, whether it's a TV timeout, whether it's a, a certainly if, it, if the opponent takes a timeout, it's bonkers. It just keeps going, man, and it doesn't stop. And when you got a hundred thousand people in there pulling the same direction with that same constant infectious energy, that is an advantage that is indescribable. And my gosh, is it fun to be immersed in? It. And you know, I got to kind of experience it at the field level, um, being on the field and, and, and experiencing that. And it's so loud. I was glad I had earplugs. So, and I love the way, one cool thing that I like about college football, and it's very different, I will tell you, it's very different right now with these stadiums that either have no fans in them or very limited capacity. The music, so I love the, the how music has kind of penetrated the game day experience. And when there are those timeouts, they're playing music. Most teams have a DJ now or whatever. Um, that's really fun. With with limited capacity, it's very odd because it's so it's like head splittingly loud. But anyway, whiteout experience was just phenomenal. Uh, I love it, and y'all are fortunate to have that, and you do a great job with it. Marty, you've been able to work some games here in 2020 already. But when Penn State takes the field on Saturday, what should they expect from a limited capacity crowd? Um, it's a, it's a very unique experience. I'll tell you, I've now done, um, how many games have I done? Six or seven, I think this year so far. Um, and all limited capacity. I've done everything from 25% capacity at the swamp to, um, tomorrow night, I'm going to do 7% capacity at Kid Brewer Stadium in Appalachia, uh, in, uh, in Boone, North Carolina, which is going to be like 2000 fans. So it's a very weird, it's weird. That's the only way I can say it because it seems very quiet in a lot of cases. Um, and it's a very different experience, but you have to create your own energy. And that's what the coaches are going to tell the players. You have to be the energy. You can't rely on what you normally rely on. It has to be, every coach has said that to me. You have to be the energy from Monday until Saturday night. You're the energy. And that's how they have to operate. And it's going to be unique at first, different. Got to bring your own juice to say the least. I want to end with this, Marty. No so, doubt. so Penn State released a new addition to their jersey earlier this week to to showcase unity. But from your vantage point on the national perspective, how have you seen the game of football really bring people together during a time of social unrest? I'll be honest with you, uh, it, it has, and it's a it's another level because of the player empowerment. Um, I've always felt that way about football. I've always felt that football was a great uh, unification tool. And and regardless of whatever obstacles may separate us in our daily walk, whether that is race, whether that's politics, whether that's religion, whatever that is, when you step between the lines of a football field, all the lines that divide us on a daily basis are gone. They are erased. For the players who are involved in the game, I've ex- I, I played high school football 
and I, I knew it then. And I'm an old man. That was 1994, dude. You might not even been born yet. But I can tell you that it has gone to another plateau because the coaches, the administrations, have empowered these young men to have a voice. And they deserve to have a voice, and that voice is very, very resonant because they're afforded through major college football such a massive, wide-reaching platform. And I'm so impressed. I was talking to Trevor Lawrence about it last week, Clemson's quarterback. Trevor was integral not only in the unity efforts racially at Clemson, he was also really, uh, in my opinion, the catalyst for the We Want to Play movement among the players. And, you know, so they have a massive voice and a massive platform, and the coaches are letting them use it. And it's awesome to see. Marty Smith, ESPN, appreciate you taking the time to join us on the Unraveled Podcast. And hopefully we can see you back up here sometime soon with a, a full whiteout capacity crowd, all right? I sure hope so, and I appreciate you guys having me and letting me ramble and share and fellowship together. Have an amazing day. Enjoy week one, and uh, I do hope to see you soon. Thank you so much. Good snap, put down, kick is up, the kick hits the upright, no good! The Nettie Warriors come up with a goal line stand! It's time for our final segment of the day called Goal Line Stand. Once again, I want you to share your biggest takeaway from any episode of the Unravel Podcast with me on Twitter, at Mitch Gerber. That's at Mitch Gerber. My biggest takeaway from today's episode with Marty Smith was when he was discussing the various pieces of clay you come across in life. Let's take a listen. You and I speaking right now will pinch at my clay. And each one of those acquaintances or each one of those relationships or those friendships or those loves or loves lost, pinch at that clay. It might just be a small piece of your shoulder. It might take a whole chunk out of your rib. But what it does is it reshapes who you're going to be tomorrow. That's going to do it for this edition of the Unrivaled Podcast. We'll see you on Saturday in Bloomington, Indiana. official podcast of Penn State football.